Hello, I'm John Hartkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer, and welcome to another edition of ABI's Party and Interest Podcast series. In the legal sense, a party in interest is someone who has standing to be heard by the court in a matter to be decided in a bankruptcy proceeding. In the case of this series, party in interest highlights extraordinary members of our community for their contributions to key bankruptcy developments, initiatives to push the practice forward, and or passion for a cause or activity outside of the office. When it comes to the career arch to the bankruptcy profession, today's guest made a wholesale change to join the restructuring world. That is because David Tanabi, an associate with Winthrop and Weinstein in Minneapolis, formerly played nine years in the National Hockey League before an injury forced him into early retirement. Join ABI Executive Director Amy Quackenboss as she talks with David about his transition from professional hockey to law and the lessons he's gleaned from the ice rink to apply in the courtroom. Go ahead, Amy. Thanks so much, John. Hi, David. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining me today for my Party and Interest podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Our guests on this podcast um, have different stories to tell about how they became involved in the insolvency industry. And your story, as John alluded to, is, is unique, and I'm excited for our listeners to hear more about um, your story from you. But first, I have to ask, we were talking before the podcast started recording um, about your last name, and I asked you how you pronounced your last name, and you gave me two different answers. So I want to I hear from you. I'd love the listeners to hear uh, about your name and its origin. Yeah, for sure. So my last name is Japanese, and so I've heard Japanese people, Japanese speakers pronounce it Tanabe, and yet as a, I believe, fourth or maybe even a fifth generation American, believe it or not, that my last name over the course of my life, I've pronounced it Tanabe, and that's how my grandparents pronounced it, and and my parents as well. That's that is so interesting. And, and you were explaining to me that you know, as um, uh, during the World War, when Japanese uh, uh, citizens were interned here, that they they became wanted to become less Japanese and more American. So that uh, contributed to the. Um, to the evolution of the name. Yeah, there's going back to my family when I was in law school learning about some of the famous cases in World War II with the Japanese and Constitution and that part, it really hit home when I thought about things like Korematsu and the fact that my family as well came to the United States of America, immigrated, lived in the Oakland area, similar to Korematsu. And that would have been pre-World War II. And so my great-grandfather came over as a college-educated Japanese man to America, and we hear the lore and the story of why he came and, and all those things. But yeah, things really turned. Talk about a bad luck in a sense to immigrate to a country and very, very quickly have that former country or where you immigrated from attack the United States of America of all things, right? So yeah, my family went through internment. Vast majority of my family was interned like a lot of young Japanese American men. My grandfather went into the American military before he was ever interned, really to not be in that situation to be interned, but also to show the loyalty to 
the United States of America. So yeah, that story. And as I visit museums over the course of my life of the Japanese American experience through World War II, it, it definitely hits home. I think that my family went through a lot of the things that people recognize as the experience of Japanese Americans of trying to simulate losing a lot of the culture, losing the pronunciation of names and the language. And yet now I think we try to embrace those things more and, and bring it back and recognize the the diversity and the wealth of diversity that people are bringing to our country. Well, that's, I mean, such an interesting story. And, you know, and, and um, you share that with a lot of individuals um, whose, you know, family, my, my last name, Quackenboss, we're all related to the Quackenbushes and to the Quackenbosses with one S. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the United States is a melting pot um, as well. As, you know, all of our names have different rich histories. So I appreciate you sharing that, that with me. Uh, so I do want to I do want to dive into um, how you really became uh, an insolvency professional. But to do that, I want to back up because, you know, you were um, an all-American ice hockey player in high school. You went to the University of Wisconsin for uh, a year. And then shortly thereafter, you were drafted into um, uh, the NHL in, in the first uh, round of the draft. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. Um uh, because we have a lot of hockey fans uh, that are ABI members, so tell us a little bit about that journey and and you know your passion for hockey and uh, and what you loved about hockey, and then you know how you when you left what you did. Yeah, for sure. So as a young child growing up in North Dakota and Minnesota, I would watch college hockey in the Midwest and the North Stars, the Minnesota North Stars. Believe it or not. And I remember the first time my grandfather took me to a game to see the excitement in the building and the energy. And it's something now when I go to NHL games, I'm like, wow, this is an adrenaline-filled environment. And that caught my eyes as a young, as a young kid. One of the things that really drew me to the game was the, the social element. I remember going to elementary school and all the kids were talking about the sports that they were playing and how they were talking to each other and laughing and enjoying it. And I wanted to be a part of that too. So one of the big things that got me into the game of hockey was just the social interaction to be with my friends. Now, yeah, over the years, as I grew up, I started to see, hey, got some talent at this and uh, things are going pretty well. And yeah, once I got up to about 16 or 17, when I started to make the U.S. national teams and starting to compete against the other elite players around the world, I was starting to see, okay, yeah, maybe there might be a future here for me to do this. And yeah, I got that opportunity to represent the United States as a, a, a kid from about 15, 16, all the way up at, through as an NHL player at times on the international stage. And yeah, Wisconsin was, for me, it's interesting to watch college sports these days and the kind of the way that student athletes are. Like to give an example, I was watching the Heisman Trophy the other night and the announcer said, well, these guys are basically pros. And so it's a, interesting how much things have changed and, and the sense that these players now are getting NIL deals and getting compensated. I remember being an 18-year-old student-athlete at the University of Wisconsin and definitely thinking in my mind, will I go pro and when will that transition happen? And so, yeah, I was very fortunate to be drafted in the first round in the NHL and under odd circumstances really I think had to go into the National Hockey League earlier than I would have anticipated based off of uh, one of the defensemen 
when I was at the Carolina Hurricanes had actually passed away. And so there was a need to add another defenseman earlier. And so I, there became my NHL career starting at 19. And and looking back, I, I think as a 19-year-old, I thought I was pretty grown up. You know, these days, as when I look at 19 and 20-year-olds playing in the National Hockey League and see the baby faces and go, man, really young age to to get that sort of opportunity to, you know, perform in front of sold out venues and make that kind of money and be in that side of sort of limelight is is a great experience. But really looking back, it's really remarkable how early that can happen in the life of a of a hockey player. Yeah. I mean it is it, it the the whole, you know, um professional sports and young players, I mean it's it is crazy the level of responsibility and the amount of pressure. Yeah. That can be on these kids, um, and uh, and you know, but but it is it is very exciting um, to to watch. Um, so you know, kudos to you for having a very successful career before you joined the insolvency uh, industry. Um, uh, so you left hockey, you retired because you had an injury, uh, as as John mentioned, uh, and then I guess you went back and and you finished college. Yeah. So. When I look back on that chapter of my life from 19 to 28, the things I learned as a player, as a professional hockey player, reaching the pinnacle of a game, being paid millions of dollars to do something where only 7,800 players or people in the world get paid that kind of money. What a surreal environment. And then to transition, and I look at that chapter of my life when I came out with really one year of undergrad with a lot of it stale. And so I really had to go back and completely do four years of college. And I give so much credit to some of the mentors in my life around that time. Like to give an example, my sports agent at that point was Neil Sheehy had played college hockey at Harvard and went on and played in the National Hockey League. And he was one of many people around me stressing the importance of academics and education. And, And looking back in hindsight, I would look at most players and say, hey, one of the beauties of going back to school and being in that environment is it gives you an opportunity in a time period to figure out your other talents and figure out your other interests. And I really look at this next generation of NHLers who people perceive, and it's probably correct, that they've made a lot of money. And with that money comes opportunity to take some time to transition and figure it out. So for me, yeah, when I went back and did my undergrad, it was take calculus. I hadn't picked up a math textbook in almost a decade. And so I had to go back and take all these mathematics courses and chart my way through university and figure out the things that I really want to do and the things that I enjoyed. And some of it came back really quick. It, I went back to where I was academically as an 18, 19 year old. And I could say, oh, hey, I remember in high school, this was what I enjoyed more than something else. But that period of time, I think it took me, yeah, it took me several years to just get through my undergrad. And one of the things I had to do during that time was just turn off this sort of free up and do something feeling because it really, there was an element of patience. There was an element of being okay with being around students who were a lot younger than me. And, you know, that I believe started a journey of understanding that, hey, for a long period of time here, I might be just age-wise and life experience-wise in a different spot than a lot of my peers who are around me. And so, and I think that was okay 
because to some degree, I appreciated the energy that the younger people were bringing. And oddly, going back to college a little bit older too, I was like, hey, this was pretty fun when I was here before and kind of nice to be someplace where I don't have the pressures to perform so much athletically that I could just isolate on the academics and start really diving into that. And, you know, that was one of the things I will say that really surprised me was once I only did academics as somebody a little bit older, I was like, this intellectual challenge, I really like this. This is bringing something to my life and enriching my life in a way that I wasn't getting as a professional hockey player. And so, you know, that kind of took on a life of its own and, and carried on. And so moving on after I graduated from college, I did a lot of things where I stayed in hockey. I continued to coach. I was involved with the USA Hockey with the National Team Development Program, which was a really neat opportunity. I look back now and I, I flip on the TV and I watch NHL games. I can see all the players that I had a chance to to work one-on-one with and the Austin Matthews of the world. And these guys, when they were 16, I remember with Austin Matthews, he's now a big superstar with the Toronto Maple Leafs. When I met Austin when he was 15, 16, we were already talking about could he play in an NHL game at that moment. And so the extreme talent and that some of these players had and to be able to teach them, but also just be around and be maybe for a, a blink of an eye, a part of their development and who they were going to be. And so yeah, that was super neat. But what was missing in the hockey community for me was that sort of intellectual challenge that I was starting to, to sense coming on through my undergraduate. And one of the things that happened to me, I guess the question becomes, how did you get to law school, right? And, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. So I really went to law school with the first initial idea that I would be a sports agent. And I, at that time, was starting to help a sports agency. And I was like, this makes sense. A lot of sports agents are attorneys. Well, one of the things that happened to me in my first year of law school was I started to do court-related activities. And I was like, wow, I just love court. I love court. So all of a sudden, it was like, hey, I've got all this history in a sport, in a game. And this is a really candid moment. One of the things that became really apparent, and it's something that I deal with on a daily basis, is that the rules of ethics that govern attorneys doesn't necessarily govern other sports agents. And so if you're dealing in an environment where you're held to a higher ethical standard because of your license, that can create a huge obstacle to success. I'll leave it at that. But <laughs> I would love to hear those stories, but we'll, well, that's for another podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. So putting that on the side, I think for me, it's, you know, what I'm doing and what I try to do on a daily basis is is about skill. It's about passion for skill, improving it if it's in my hockey career, if it's as an attorney. And so once I got to law school and saw court and what that was about, that became a core skill set that I really wanted to learn about and really wanted to be a part of. And so I started doing externships in courts and then Carrying that all the way through graduation and law school, I was trying to find a way to be in court as much as possible. 
and clerked for judges for my first three and a half years out of law school. And it's pretty amazing looking back now because the clerkships, I'm so grateful I did them. And I know that there's some discussion about, well, how much they teach you to practice and how much do you pick up? Well, you know, I'll never give up, but I'm so appreciative of, let me put it this way or rephrase. The stuff that I saw was just to me, just doing what I do to follow in the skill that I wanted to know and be good at. And like my first year was in state district court at the level where the judge, we handled a mixed calendar of criminal, family, probate, civil. And one of the greatest things with that was to realize in the insolvency community for so many of us practicing in insolvency when we have to go into state court at the trial court level sometimes we are appearing in front of judges who have a mixed calendar or have a background that isn't an insolvency and so that experience for me as a clerk helped me to recognize hey if this judge has family law matters on the same day or maybe that judge has a huge murder trial that they're dealing with at that time, maybe an insolvency matter is going to be treated differently or maybe researched differently or approached a little differently from the court side. Um, you know, so one of the ways I, so this is really the question, I guess, how do I get into to bankruptcy court? And that was a product of that sort of passion coming through and connecting with the bankruptcy judge who I clerked for and and Judge Fisher and the District of Minnesota. I clerked for him for two and a half years as a, a bankruptcy judge. And he had previously came from state district court and and he had handled criminal cases. And there was really a connect there between us, I believe, because we appreciated evidence and advocacy and really kind of had a meeting of the minds on that point. Well, the, I mean, that, that is, that's a great story. And, I, you know, when I, I actually clerked for a, ma a federal magistrate judge, so I got a lot of the criminal pretrial uh, proceedings and, uh, you know, first appearances. And I really, I mean, clerkships um, uh, are so important and so critical, um, not just for our judges, but for those of us who clerk to kind of learn what not to do right you know we, we we saw great lawyers and then we saw not so great lawyers right and and at least my judge and i'm sure your judges would point out everything that we should not be doing in in real practice so when i got to private practice which i you know it sounds like you did too you're a little more comfortable even though you were from day one doing discovery and and looking at documents right you were you knew how to handle yourself in a courtroom and that's so important um so important so um but I, i'm glad you found your way uh to the insolvency community and uh and um but we, is there one thing if you look back on everything you did before getting here um your hockey career um going to, you know being in college um and and really falling in love with academic is there anything that really you learned um Let's let's focus on your hockey career. Is there anything you learned throughout hockey that you've been able to apply uh, as a lawyer or as a you know as an insolvency professional that maybe helped you? Has helped you? That's, yeah, I think that. Let me put it this way: I think we all deal with different sorts of motivations at different points in our lives. Different things can motivate us 
sometimes it's the fear of things that can drive us. And so for me, I equate it sometimes to, to the journey that we take and whatever we enjoy doing, be it a hobby or as a profession, we've lived through these ups and downs. And one of the, I would say three things I would take away from the NHL. One is learning how to perform when you don't feel your best. Over the course of an 82-game NHL season, there's a lot of points where you just maybe your body doesn't feel that good. Maybe you're dealing with some sort of head cold or virus or something, but you got to play through it. And learning how sometimes the a performance can be simplified and a performance can be just brought into the basics and the basics done really well in order to get a good outcome. And I think that was one of the things I saw in the NHL, even though there's 18,000 people in the building, sometimes great performances on the ice are just a product of the players saying, I'm just going to do the core things that I need to do really well, the best that I can do today. And that sort of understanding that you can drive a great outcome sometimes from just being the best version of yourself in that moment. And you know, that was a huge thing. Another huge thing was understanding that at the very top, people can prepare themselves differently and still come to the same outcome. And what I mean by that is I remember playing on teams with Hall of Fame players and their preparation could be very different and how much they needed to prepare, how much they needed to kind of get their adrenaline going or get amped up for the performance versus other people needed to just relax. They were already really intense and into it. So that was great for me to look at people who I would say are like role models at that time. These players are performing at a level that I want to, but I also have to understand that there might be things about them that are different than me. So taking the good of them and the things that I can learn from observing them, but also understanding too that my best might be individualized to me. And so I think in the practice a lot, to some degree, that comes up every day. You know, there might be days where I'm trying to do the best for my client and for whatever reason, things are not perfect. Sometimes I'll lean back on that idea of let's just focus on the cores of what we actually need to achieve here to get get the outcome for the client and helping helping with the confidence of understanding that that can, can get the, the outcome that the client needs. Or, you know, understanding too in a law firm where I'm looking around at, at partners and using those observational skills to see other people's uh, things that they're doing well and, and trying to, is there a way I can incorporate that into what I do? So that sort of in learning mind and observe it mind is something that I think is very similar in the National Hockey League to practicing law. Like you're watching other people, understanding watching their performances, understanding what they're doing and how that might improve your own your own skill set. Those are both really great perspectives. I mean, just, you know, just being able and, and I mean, and mature for, you know, a 19 year old hockey player to be able to sit back and say, hey, I'm going to bring my best today. It, it You know, it's what I can do and I'm going to focus on the core. And that's um, that is so uh, important. And I mean, I think we can all take that advice uh, in in our um in our positions and, and jobs today. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I do want to ask you one more question. Um, and you mentioned role models. Um, and, and um, uh, you know, you mentioned that 
we may not be just like our role models, but you know, a role model is some something has aspects of of uh, traits that we want to emulate. But growing up, who was your role model? Was it a hockey player? Well, it's a great question, and I laugh because over the course of my life, I've been able to meet several of my role models in person and and spend time with, around them, and so there were many of them over the course of time, and. There were things that I always, it's interesting because my dad was my first role model and my dad was somebody who showed me how to work and showed me what it means to be dedicated to your profession and your craft. And that was something that my dad taught me. You know, as I got older and I went off and started to play with some of my heroes and seeing the things that they brought to the table, um, one of the things, and it's not the fault of anyone, it's something that I tell my own children is, you know, our role models can be role models in certain ways, but they're not, nobody's perfect, right? And that's something that I try to share with my own children only because I want my children to have that realistic view of, of everybody who they come in contact with in life, right? Like there's traits and, and things that people do exceptionally well, but there's other things that might not be their greatest talent or their greatest strength. I take professional hockey players in general, right? Like we look at them and we watch their physical performances, but they've dedicated many of them, their lives to that physical performance. And so when we listen to their interviews after games, none of us are expecting that these pro athletes are polished speakers like Ryan Seacrest because they haven't spent the time to dedicate themselves to that, to that craft, most of them, right? So, you know, it's that understanding that what's the positive, what's the the thing that people around us are doing well. And so, you know, there's so many people that on a daily basis, even my assistant, sometimes I look at my assistant and I won't, I probably should tell her more, but sometimes she does a great job and I, I appreciate that. And I look up to that when, when she's helping to make filings happen really well or making sure that things are put in order for helping our clients, right? So there's a lot of role models around me. Um, you know, I think one thing that for me has been tricky is to find at this stage as an attorney, who is somebody who's gone through a journey like mine? And, you know, I did go through a period of time when I was transitioning from hockey, trying to figure out who are former professional athletes who have transitioned in a way that I want to. And I was really amazed to think about the NHL hockey players who went on to law school, how different each of them are actually, and the different ways they could be coming into their their second career. So to give an example, one role model that I look up these days to in Minnesota is Alan Page. And he wasn't a hockey player, but he was a Hall of Fame football player, went on to serve on the Minnesota Supreme Court, won the Freedom Award, right? Got the Freedom Medal from the President of the United States. That's a pretty good transition off of professional sports. Interesting, though, to think that there's a few of them that are Hall of Famers, and I think that gives um, some sort of visual recognition. People know them, their reputation might perceive them, and so they might be coming at it from a different spot than, say, someone like myself who... I played pretty well in, in my league, but I never reached the status of a Hall of Fame player. So, yeah, 
But when I look at Alan Page, I think that he's driving home some of the things that I would look back now over decades and say, is it's the education. Like he puts a lot of effort into the Alan Page Foundation, focused on academics for youth, and really that sort of idea of what education can bring to people is you know, something that I really appreciate that for me, so many of these former players who came along and said, hey, think about academics, take it serious. This is a place where you can go and at least figure out who you are and figure out your skills and talents and the things that you enjoy doing. And so, you know, for guys like Alan Page and Neil Sheehy and those, the former players who gave me that advice, I'm, you know, forever grateful that they were showing that through their actions too, that, that academics matters and and showing that way for you know athletes to to transition well to their next careers. Well, I I am going to play this podcast for my high schooler um, who is in athletics and who wants to go to college and be in athletics and aspires to be a professional athlete. Um, and uh, because academics is important, it's it you know it is an important. Um, foundation as well as the athletics right so um so combining the two uh i think like you did uh you know really really um uh, sets you apart um and and helps you uh in your future so i will definitely be sharing this with him <laughs> see what david said <laughs> um but i also i also what you just said about role models i i really enjoyed hearing because um, you know, your point is that everyone around you can have role model qualities and you should be looking for that. You should be pulling in from everybody and paying attention to everybody and the things that they do well that you could improve on um, and aspire um, to be like them in that way. It doesn't have to be one particular person, um, although it sounds like you've had several great role models um, throughout your careers. Um, but I, I love that. I love that what you said about that. So um uh, I appreciate. And I appreciate, David, you spending some time with me. This has been great. Um, and I look forward to uh, ha having you come back uh, and um, share some other thoughts with us uh, and work with us in ABI. Um, so thank you very much for meeting with me today. Yeah, thank you. So thank you very much for listening to uh, this Party and Interest podcast. Uh, I hope you'll join me for my next uh, podcast. Keep an eye out on the ABI website for the upcoming podcast. And if you have any ideas for um, parties and interests, please reach out to us um, at abi.org and, and uh, share your suggestions.